if you have a smartphone, please put it in the smartphone thingy bingy. Uh, what do you call it? Basket. Oh, basket. Yes, it's a, called a basket. You know why it's called a basket? Because if you spend too much time on your smartphone, you become a basket case. <laughs> that was not sensitive of me. You like it? It's okay. getting too long. It's right. not the typeface. Is this a continuation or is it a new series? It's a continuation. All right. So this is the final class we're going to have on God's desire. That's it. Three classes is enough. Yeah. It's, a, it's a class about God's desire. God is holy. It's three classes like a holy trinity. <laughs> okay, well, it's a good thing we're not talking about God being a trinity, just that the classes are a trinity. Okay, fine. Maybe it's a triathlon, a mental triathlon. There we go. Okay. All right. So, the thing we discussed in the last class is that you can't really ask about the primary desire or will of God. In fact, for that matter, you can't really ask about the primary will or desire of anything. Right? Because the idea is that when you want to explain why is something important, why is something valuable, why is something good, why is something meaningful, stick in whichever synonym you want there, if you are able to put that in a context, you're just putting it in the context of something else being valuable, meaningful, important, etc. Right? So it's only valuable to eat if it's valuable for you to live. Right? So the value in life becomes the context to understand the value in eating. Right? But then you say, well, why is it valuable to live? And if you find some re- something that makes life valuable, that itself is just another value. So, so a value can contextualize and justify another value, but value itself, meaning itself, purpose itself cannot be, value, cannot be contextualized. So whatever is the initially, initial thing that is meaningful and valuable or important, that it's an error of the mind to ask why is that important. Okay? And that's even without getting to God. Okay? Um, and like I said before, the, the, in, the, in, the, um, in the Declaration of Independence of the United States, this is referred to the idea of something that is self-evident. Self-evident doesn't mean everyone agrees to it. It means the person who that's their worldview thinks that that feels like that is just axiomatically true. It's intrinsic. They don't, it doesn't feel like it needs to be justified. That's the value that justifies the other things. So then the question becomes, well, what is God's initial value? What is God's primary value? What is the thing that God, so to speak, desires that then justifies everything else that God values? And so we can use that value to understand everything else, but that value itself can't be understood. It can be accepted. It can possibly be empathized with, but that's as far as you can go. That's what we spoke about last week, yes? And you were gonna tell us I was gonna tell you the context or the of the mixing what? wool and money. I promised to do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wait, what? I'm, I might read about that. Why? Because I have a lot to cover and only another hour and seven minutes to do so. Okay. So I'll just ask you later. You could do that. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to ask you a question. I would like a well-thought-out, intelligent answer that you're willing to defend in public. (laughs) Otherwise, don't answer the question. 
Is it possible for God to want anything? What do you mean by want when you say yes? What do you mean by desire? Something that's necessary and meaningful. Something contingent and meaningful, right? There, God, God, can gi- God can give rise to something that is contingent and meaningful. Okay. Now, what is another meaning of the word want? Lack. Lack. Does it make sense that God can want in the sense of lacking? No. So I'm here today to tell you that the answer to that is yes. My notes. We spent two days last week convincing you of one thing, and then we learned something else that seems to undermine it all. No. Okay. But as is a normal thing we do in classes, we're going to talk about stuff other than God for a while because God gets us all, gives us the heebie-jeebies. And then once we've finished understanding the concepts, then we'll apply them back to God Almighty Hashem Himself. That's the best quote you've heard? No. Really? Of all the things I have said since you've been my student, that's the best. I'm not sure whether to be proud or offended. Okay. All right. So before we go forward, I want to do a little thought experiment. Okay? I want to do a little thought experiment. Okay? If you had a magic wand, okay? And you were, God forbid, um, at a friend's funeral, okay? And you were feeling sad. Would you use the magic wand to make yourself feel happy? Because happy always feels better than feeling sad. No, I would do it. Can't you use the magic wand to bring your friend back to life? That's not the question I asked. What? That's not what I asked you. You made it to make you. You can usually make yourself fully happy. Now I want to be clear. You feel happy, with, and you wouldn't feel guilty about being happy. Also, it's not happy, and then plus the guilt. Just happy, no guilt. Can you do it after the funeral? No. <laughs> you have a happy one before after the funeral. But if I, I don't remember talking about God. God gives me the eebie-jeebies. <laughs> I'm just talking about you as a human being. I didn't say you can do everything. You have a magic wand that can make you feel happy without any guilt associated with yeah, it. Just look, no. guys, I'm assuming that you have, you have you know, read enough books and watched enough movies. You know, magic wands can't do anything. They have limits, right? Yeah. This is a magic wand that can make you happy without feeling guilty about it. That's what it can do. Riley, you have papers. Someone said she would do it. She would do it. Yeah. Okay. Gabriella. Who would do it? Gabriella. You would do it? Wait, wait. No. No. It's a valid question. I'm sorry. Um, I would do it. Okay. She would bring her back to life. That's not what she would do. No. 
Okay. Now we're going to up the stakes. Now we're going to up the stakes, and I apologize, but this is what happens when, you know, somebody doesn't play along with my games. I have to up the stakes. What if, God forbid, it was your own child? You can't bring back. You can just make yourself feel happy and not feel guilty about it. I think... But it's not a problem with being sad in that context. If it was my kid, I think I'd do it. No, it's eternally happy and guiltless. I think I'd do it if it was my kid. What? Really shallow, like, yeah. Okay. Now, yes. It is actually. <laughs> so if, if after reflection you have concluded that you would do that, um, you should see a shrink. <laughs> Okay. Now, if you feel tempted, then you're normal. Okay, because we are tempted to do this. So, okay. The reason why the reason why I want to bring this out, the reason why I want to bring this up, is because one of the things about people is that, we, and we're gonna, we're going to start with people, is that there's different layers to us. Okay, and very often the thing that is the most obvious, or the thing that is the most common, or the thing that we um, latch onto, is Misleading, right? So people will often say like, oh, you're a parent. They'll tell me you're a parent. You must want your kids to be happy. And which is, yes, I mean, I do want my kids to be happy. Is it the most important thing to me that my kids be happy? No. For instance, there are times when I want my kids to be sad. Because there are things that if you are sad about, that shows that you have depth of character, you're connected to reality, you're living life that is, that is, that is, that is a noble life. Remember that's a word noble that we rarely use? So somebody who is, who is part of a tragic event or a sad circumstance and does not feel loss, that indicates a kind of shallowness, a depth, a, a lack of depth, a lack of character, a lack of, 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 of things that, are, that are, people should have. And a, and a person who is living a more nobler existence, they will feel loss, and they will feel pain, and they will feel hurt. So it's not that I want my children to feel, I want my children to be pained by the things that ought to pain them, and to take joy in the things that ought to cause them joy. But if something happens that, that really is not a joyous thing, I don't want them to feel joy, not from it and not as a distraction from it. Now, that, that obviously is balanced with a bunch of other things, such as I want them to be functional, and every human being has a limit to how much pain they can handle before they crack. That's a separate issue. But all things being equal, if something unfortunate happens, I want them to be able to feel the pain and feel the loss and mourn and all those things. Why? Because all of those things stem from underlying things that you value and that matter to you. So if I value something, then that makes me um, have so-called positive experiences when the thing I value goes well, but it also makes me have so-called negative or painful experiences when it doesn't go well. And if I'm not having those painful experiences when it doesn't go well, then that means I don't really value it. I don't really care about it. So if, you know, this is a little parenting advice. If your child, I think I've said this before, I said this, if your child is being bullied by somebody and you express to your child a deep equanimity 
you know, tolerance and forbearance and, you know, lack of judgment, you know, judgmentalism, and realizing there are two sides to every story. Yeah? Um, what message does your child get? And but and you don't really care. Now, if the thing you get is that that this deeply bothers you, you are you can fill in whatever thing is more appropriate to your particular personality, saddened, indignant, whatever it is about it. But now you have to be pragmatic about how you deal with it, and like you know, going over and like you know having your father beat up the bully is probably not the most effective way to do it. But in terms of on the emotional level, I care about you, and the fact this person is hurting you really bothers me. What what is that? What sense does that convey to the child? Right? That my parents, if I va- and I'm going to use the word value instead of love, because this can be, even be the case, um, even in cases where you don't feel necessarily the most affectionate to your child. Like the child and the parent could be having a fight, and yet somebody is uh, uh, afflicting the child, and then the child could be, gets a sense their parents value them not necessarily through signs of affection. Okay? So what we would call just one second, what we what we call pain. Pleasure, joy, sadness, and the whole range of different things that we can group into those things are really the side effect of two things. I value something, and it's either going well or it's not going well. If I value something that's going well, then I experience joy, pleasure, etc. And if I value something that's not going well, I experience pain, loss, sorrow, etc. If I'm not experiencing pain, loss, and sorrow, it's either because everything is always going well all the time. And what world does that exist? Talking again on human being, the world of human beings, that, that, that does not exist in any world that human beings live in. Or it means that I don't care. Right? So, and this is what King Solomon said in his great wisdom, which is that the more you care, the more pain you experience. Yosef das, Yosef mechayv. The more you are connected to something, the more you care about something, the more you value something, the more you make yourself vulnerable to pain. Okay? Now, you now then have a choice to make, which is I could either see pain as a bad thing, and therefore what is my solution to dealing with pain? Have no values. Have no right? Don't really value anything. Or I could say valuing is something that, for lack of words, I value. I value valuing the things that I value, and therefore I built up a ability to handle, to tolerate pain and suffering and sorrow and loss. Okay? Now, let's go back to food for a second. Who is a person who would never be sad because they lack food? Someone who never a homeless person is not sad because they lack food? <laughs> Someone who has no value in food. Someone who doesn't eat. Who doesn't need to eat. Why don't they need to eat? Some weird aesthetic. Sorry, I shouldn't say weird. You can say weird. And this is this is this class we pass judgment all the time. <laughs> right? <laughs> this is not a you know postmodernism seek your own truth class. Uh, a weird aesthetic. <laughs> Yeah, but the thing is, they might have a lower standard of how much food they need, but if you take whatever little bit of food they want, their food they have there. Yeah? Like anorexic people? No. It would be a person who has, a person who has no value in staying alive. 
right? Because if you have a value in staying alive, then, and you don't have sufficient food, you're not gonna stay alive, right? So valuing staying alive makes you vulnerable to feeling a loss for food. Now, it could be that you live in a society where the, you know, that kind of starvation doesn't occur regularly, and so you don't have a problem, and that's great, and that's wonderful. But valuing staying alive means that you are in principle saying, you're in principle uh, making yourself vulnerable to the fact that if, God forbid, there is ever a, a situation where things get to a starvation level, you are going to feel a sense of lacking and the associated feelings because you don't have the food now, if you're okay with withering away and not continuing to exist anymore, God forbid, then, then you can also be fine without having any food. Yeah? I feel like this, I don't know, maybe not, but to me it seems like it's related to like, some Holocaust survivors who then decided not to have children because they thought that like, this is the world we're bringing children into, then it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. It feels like resolving the issue of, like, I have a value of bringing children into the world, and then that opens me up to the possibility that they will also be victims of anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. On, on the crazy scale, and so then they like solve that issue by removing the value of having children. Basically. Correct. Right. So, so the thing is, is that the the, the thing that, that this is getting at is that we are all familiar with the idea that I desire, and what's for we need a word for the opposite of desire: abhor, fear, reject, something like that. Yeah, because I because I'm lacking. So. I'm lacking food and therefore I desire food and I fear, you know, starvation, okay? I'm lacking in, um, in, in, in being comfortable with just my mere, mere existence, so therefore I desire stimulation and I fear boredom. That makes sense? I start with a lack and then because I have a lack, I have desires to meet that lack, to fulfill that lack, and I also have fear of not having the things that will help fulfill that lack or take away that. Does that make sense? It should be like pretty normal. You could so, fit every fear, desire, and You could. You just, you could. That doesn't mean you're doing it correctly. Is it, it, sorry, is it a fear that you're going back to your state of lacking? Well, it depends specifically what it is. Um, but if you think about it just a little bit more deeper, so I, I, I value this, I abhor that because I'm lacking something, right? But if then you have the question, why am I lacking? The lacking is itself based on something I value. So why do I desire food and fear starvation? I value life. Because I value life. Which means while on a superficial level, every desire and every fear is based on a lack. If we investigate that lack, that lack is only because of a prior value. Okay, let me put it to you like this. If I take a tree and I uproot it from the ground and I throw it on a piece of concrete and leave it there, is the tree lacking anything? Yeah. Well, like nutrients, everything it has. Why is it lacking? Because it just get out of the ground. And so what? Why is it lacking? Because a tree needs the ground to get the food. To what? To get food. In order to why does it need food? Fulfill its purpose. To, 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 to live. Well, why does it have to stay alive? So it has a purpose. I guess it doesn't because now it's out of context. So its purpose is irrelevant. No, what you have to do is you basically you have to already have bought into the fact that there's a value in the tree's continued existence. And then you could say it's lacking nutrients. But what if you, what if you have a conversation with someone who thinks that the tree, there's value in the tree's existence and someone who doesn't think there's value in the tree's existence? 
the person thinks there's value in the trees. This is a yeah. Well, now the tree is lacking nutrients. The other person say, well, it's not lacking nutrients, so it doesn't have nutrients. That's not a lack, right? A lack is remember going back to the previous class. A lack is when you ought to have something that you don't have. But if you don't value the tree's existence, there's no. It doesn't. It, why should it? Why should it have nutrients? So so, who cares? It doesn't make a difference. Which means every time we're already speaking of desire, wanting, fearing, because to meet a lack, the very lack itself is an indication of some deeper value. Okay? So now this is confusing, and we have words to keep track of this. Okay? Um, we're going to call this inner desires and outer desires. An outer desire is a desire that stems from a lack. What we call in English wanting. Wanting the sense of desire and the sense of lacking. So I want to eat. Why do I want to eat? Because I'm lacking in nutrients. And that gives me a desire to, eat the, to get food, to eat the nutrients. So that's called an outer desire. What would be the inner desire? Yeah, but what would that, what, what the inner desire would be in that, if, if I, my outer desire is a desire to eat, what's the inner desire? To stay, to stay alive. Now the question is like this, well, why do I have a desire to live? And for this purpose right now, we're just, let's, 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 so in order to a true inner desire, then you have to say like this, I desire to live. Life is, my life is valid to me. Why? It is. It's valid to me. Like it, it really is valid to me. And because it's valued to me and it can't persist without eating, now I'm, lack, now I'm lacking food. Because it can't persist without companionship, therefore I'm lacking friends. But if the, 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 value, the value in the life is intrinsic life. The life is not there because, then it, because it meets some other lack. The life is actually creating lacks. If I didn't value living, I wouldn't be lacking food and I wouldn't be lacking friends and I wouldn't be lacking shelter. So because I value this one thing, that actually creates other lacks. Okay? Is a government, does it, can you say that a government is lacking in um, revenue? Yeah, no. You can yeah. never say a government's lacking in revenue? No. Why not? It all money. That's not what I am. I'm asking, is it conceptually bought? Well, it depends which government, you know. Some government, <laughs> have, you heard of, have, you heard, have you heard of the ancien, have you heard of France? Every government's rich. No. No. Have you ever heard of France? No. Yeah. Okay, so there was a thing called the French Revolution. <laughs> Do you know why the French Revolution happened? It was a long time ago. It was a long time ago, but you know why? Because the French government had no money. Not only they had no money, they owed a bunch of other people money. They owed us so much money that they said we have to like, do some really harsh stuff to get a bunch of money. And the people didn't like that. And then there was no more king. They actually had a lot of money. They spent a lot of money on a lot of stupid things. But they actually had no... They, 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 they had money at some point. At one point, but now they had no money. So you can have no... But you can get to a point where governments don't, where governments don't have money. And, and then, you know, bad things happen. We, we don't want, when governments don't have money, you don't want to be living around where that government is. <laughs> if life is going on normally, your government has money. That's basic rule. Um, yeah. So governments can be lacking in money. Now here's the thing. A government is only lacking in money because the government ought to have money. And why do the government ought to have money? No, why, why should a government have money? Why does government need money for? Oh, to do what? 
Well, see, that depends on your theory of government now, doesn't it? And this is what I'm getting at. Okay, so throughout history, there have been different theories of government. And depending on what your theory of government is, depends on whether the government actually could be lacking money. So, for instance, um, there, were, there, 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 were, um, there were theories of government that the government is there only to defend the people against invasion. Which means, unless we're being invaded... What does the government need to do? Nothing. Which means, does the government need to spend money? Nope. So can the government in peacetime be lacking money? Yes. No. Well, there was such a theory of government that, that if there's the only purpose of a government is to raise an army to defend the people. Wait, but if you have to be ready. One second, one second, one second. So it depends, it depends, you know, in ancient times, wars did not spring every out of nowhere. You would know well in advance you were going to fight a war. And war was only fought when it wasn't planting. Like you could, like it, what this kind of thing doesn't work in modern times. Actually, the United States used to have this view of armies, which is they would just raise an army every time there was a war. But then that became inconvenient, and they started having a standing army. But there were governments throughout history where the idea of the government is there has to be somebody who's a king. And what's the job of the king? To raise an army if we're going to get invaded. So when does the king need money? But if it doesn't look like we're getting invaded, does the king need any money? Nope. So is there any reason for the king to take my money? No. no. So you see, the very idea that the government ought to have money, therefore they're going to be lacking money, presupposes that there's some purpose for the government. Now, in modern times, we think of the government as providing social services to people, right? Depending on which country you live in, what the social services are. And since people always need social services, therefore the government always needs money. And therefore <laughs> the, we hope that the government is getting enough money so that it can spend enough money so that you know, we don't turn into you know, 1930s Germany or, you know... The Ancien Regime at the end of at the end before the French Revolution or something like that that would be bad, or Syria, mm. also a place where they ran out of money. Um, so every time you speak of a lack, you are already implicitly subscribing to some higher value, which is called this this idea of this inner will. And if you go all the way back, the original higher value, the original inner will, it's not it's not giving rise to it, it's not coming from a lack. So if you want to think of it like this, it's like a sandwich. On the top you have a value, and on the bottom you have the value, and in between what do you have? A lack. I value A, and because I value A, I'm lacking B, and because I'm lacking B, I now have a value to go out and seek something that will get me B. Okay? So I value a noble existence, right? an existence I can be proud of, I value that. And if I value that, I'm lack, right? What is the thing that I'm lacking if I value a noble existence? What, if I value having a noble existence, what would I be lacking? Well, is a person, who is, is a person whose life um, has no direction living a noble existence? No. Just kind of floundering from day to day. So if I value a noble existence and I don't, that I'm lacking, that causes a lack of, that, that, can mean, that now means I'm lacking direction. Now I value finding a direction. And now if somebody can provide that direction, that person gains value because they provide direction to help me fulfill my desire to live a noble existence. But you say, well, why do I want to live a noble existence? And the answer to that is just, I don't know, it's some deep inner will. It's just part of who I am. It's a kind of, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, going back to children, what makes you really, really lacking? What is one of the things you, that every person can do that makes them seriously lacking? Having children. Having children creates a bunch of lacks. <laughs> Because all of a sudden, because I, I have this child and I value them, and then I value them now, when they don't have enough to eat, that's a lack for me. 
When they're not functional, that's a lack for me. When their schooling isn't going well, that's a lack for? So having a child means that all of a sudden, everything that's necessary to, for their well-being becomes something you lack, and now you value also just things that you wouldn't have valued. Well, that depends if God values you now, doesn't it? Well, okay, uh-huh. are you going to die? Ah, if and this we is where we're going. From the assumption that God values me, so everything I like, relax. Mm-hmm. That's your point? Or is everything we like, relax, or that? So, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, well, the trick here is, the, the trick here is that, that, what you're saying is true, but it's misleading. Because imagine my uh, six-year-old comes to me and says, I feel like I'm really lacking chocolate in my life. And you're, I'm valuable to you. And therefore, you know, my lacks are your lacks because they're invaluable to you, right? And they answer, no, because what I value in you is not the same thing that you value that causes you to feel a lack of chocolate. Yeah, okay. So that's what we have to talk about. So I can say that God values you, and therefore, what you're lacking from God's point of view, God would therefore be lacking. But what you consider yourself to be lacking might not be the same thing. Because mm-hmm. you might value something else about yourself. Yes? Sometimes, though, I feel like we are able to tell people who value us. Um, so I could say, well, I value you because you love me very much. Because I actually, I think you need um, to go for a walk or, I don't know, whatever. And I can say, well, I think I think if we if we leave it vague as to who you are and who they are, then it's hard to decide that, right? Well, if it's you, if it's if it's you and a friend, if it's you and a friend, I think that's perfectly valid. But now let's say it's you and your two and your mother. So. We have to figure out what makes some what makes that valid sometimes and invalid some other times, and which one is a proper analogy for God, if, or maybe both are proper analogies for God. That's, that's what I'm asking. Is like okay. why why in what circumstances can we tell somebody like yes, you might not feel you value my well being. You might feel that giving me chocolate will not contribute to my well being. But at some point, I can still convince you to give me chocolate because you also value me feeling like. So I will answer that hopefully later. Okay, so now he's like this. We, in order to figure out whether God is lacking, we have to figure out what is his primary value. It could be his primary value doesn't have a lack. Like maybe the thing God values is his own existence. Well, if the only thing, if the thing that God values is his own existence, then is he lacking? No, because because unlike unlike people, if nothing happens, God's existence is not going to get weakened or destroyed or cease. So therefore, if the thing he values is his own existence, he's not lacking anything. But by the way, if he's not lacking anything, then is that a motivation to do anything, such as create a world? No. So we know two things, even before we start getting into the Kabbalah revealing stuff. We know that God values something other than his own existence, and whatever he values creates a lack that on some level requires creating a world to fulfill it. Because otherwise, would God have made a world? No. There's a way he could have not something and still made a Give me an example. Remember we're, saying, remember, we're saying that God making the world is volitional. That's very important. That we said last week. Right? It's not, it's not, it's not like, it's not, it's not, it's not, an, it's not an accident, it's not necessity. 
So then what, so then what you're saying is like this. God values expressing himself. Yeah. And therefore he's lacking in not being manifest. And then our existence fulfills that. So you're still saying God is God. Like, you have to be very careful to break it apart. Like, same as, oh, God, does, God doesn't, God, God doesn't, it's not that God's lacking, he's doing, he's, God's just doing it to be nice. Okay, but if God's just doing it to be nice, then what does that mean that he values? Yeah. Being nice. And then he's lacking the opportunity to express niceness. And then the world provides that opportunity, right? So all you're saying is that God, God so you're saying is God values self-expression. Okay. But that's, the value of self-expression then creates a lack because mere existence is not the same thing as self-expression. Okay. Yeah. His existence. His existence. If God values his existence, then what does, what lack does that create? Since God's existence is 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 is, is not subject to to. You know, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not going to, there's nothing needs to happen to maintain it. Like if I value my existence, that creates all sorts of lackings, a lack of food, a lack of purpose, a lack of, because if I don't have those things, my existence is wither away and die. If God values his existence, what then does he lack in order to maintain his existence? Nothing. So then what would that motivate him to then do? Nothing. So could that be a justification of creating a world? No. So God has to value something other than his own existence, which by the way means that God is not a narcissist, by the way, because what is a narcissist? When you care about things. Well, specifically, what part of himself? His essence. His existence. Everything is about maintaining himself, right? Now, like a loving father also cares about himself, but his care about himself envelops and incorporates care of others, right? A narcissist, it's, it's only my ex- isolated existence, and everything else a means to my further existence. Yeah. Okay. But if God would be a narcissist, then he literally would do nothing because he doesn't need anything to maintain his own existence. Yes? Um, in the sandwich, the value sandwich, or yeah. I guess the lack sandwich. Um, it's a lack sandwich with two slices of value. The value? Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> like Jessica is saying that God values expression. Self-expression. Self-expression. Then the lack is that God doesn't have a way to express himself. And then the second value is there's value in the world. Because the world facilitates some God expressing himself. That's, that's the argument you would make. Okay. By the way, the Zohar says that. So the, va- so the value... The primary value, the higher value, the inner will is... Is self-expression. Right? And once God values self-expression, we say his mere existence isn't good enough. Right. And, we need, and he needs something that allows for this other thing called expression of self. And somehow the world enables that, so now the world gets value, and then that's a reason to create the okay, world. Okay, so then the world gets value, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Let's so, go down the row. Um, so you said God isn't a narcissist. That's true. But since we all have godliness in us, and like uh-huh. a piece of God in us, then isn't God's creation of us a little narcissistic? So, <laughs> the answer to this is that I always think it's very helpful you brothers, that is to be very careful what we mean because sometimes we're very sloppy with our terminology. Okay. The value of yourself is not narcissistic. Okay. If we're using narcissistic as a pejorative, as, as a something negative, what we usually say is that somehow the value of themselves serves to turn everything else 
into a means, into an object that facilitates their own, um, I don't like to use this word, but their, 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 their own, their, their, their own sense of their own existence, their own importance. Okay, so that means there is a strict hierarchy where they're the top of the pyramid and everything else is for the maintenance of them. Now, if I have a child, and my child, and I view my child as part of my essence and blah, 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 all that stuff, right? Does that mean now my child is there to facilitate me? Is that what's happening there? No. No, what's happening is that I'm saying the thing that I value in me and perpetuating it to someone else, and that actually can cause me to devalue you know, in some limited senses, my autonomous self, right? So for instance, when you have kids, you don't spend a lot of time the way you'd want to spend time because of the value you have for your children. And I don't want to go all the way saying that's altruism. That's a whole different thing. Um, yeah, altruism is altruism. Okay, so if you think about it, like anytime you have a relationship, like a genuine, healthy relationship, friends, family, you know, um, whatever, right? Um, you're not turning the thing into a mere means for your own personal um, maintenance, right? There's a sense of, 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 um, of sharing of the value being spreading over the both of you and enveloping you and bringing the two of you together. I mean, just to give you like a, a professional example, yeah? Should doctors feel positive about the work that they do, all things being equal? Okay, so should doctors should feel positive that there's sick people in the world? But, but if there's no sick people, then the doctors don't have anyone to heal. So this is the issue between a normal person and ours. The normal person is like, yes, I derive tremendous amount of joy and satisfaction from healing people because I value people. And therefore, it drives me pleasure to be able to help them. But if the people didn't need to be helped, that would be just as good. In fact, that would be better. But the narcissist is like, if I don't have people to help, then how do I get to be a doctor? So I want there to be self-sick people in the world that I can help them. See the difference? Okay. So, in Nars, so, so if the thing you value yourself, everything is feeding back into you. But if, if you're God, and God, God if just his existence doesn't depend on anything else, the only time God becomes lacking is because he values something other than himself, then the, whatever God is is lacking, he's not feeding back into his own existence, he's feeding into this other thing he values, whatever that other thing is. Okay? Um, just to, you know, we don't, why is it that in many cultures the, the head of the government is supposed to be um, phenomenally wealthy and above the law? What was the line, what was the line of reasoning that would make that make sense? I know we, we don't like that idea in the modern world, we think it's bad, but what, what's the counter argument to that? Why it's a good thing? Why is it good to have a, what? You won't have a lack. He doesn't. Yeah. If if somebody doesn't have, if somebody has, if somebody is 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 insanely wealthy, and has no legal jeopardy, when they make decisions about how to run the country, what are they not taking into consideration? How it affects them because they're taken care of already. By the way, we still do this in many many places, including Israel. Certain people in high government positions are given very high salaries, and one of the motivations is so that they shouldn't be so tempted to take small to take bribes. That if you have a high salary, that you know a little bit of a little bit of graft on the side just isn't worth it for you anymore because you're not you're not going to gain by it. Now, whether that's an effective strategy or not, I don't want to talk about. But if you talk about God, who really doesn't need anything for his existence, 
then the only thing that he would be lacking is if he values something else. So, if, so this is one of the reasons of analogizing God to a king in the ancient sense. In the ancient sense, the king needs nothing. And now all the king's decisions are done for the welfare of his kingdom. Okay. Fine. So what is the thing that God values? So there's differing opinions. Yes, but there, there's fine print there in terms of what you mean by existence, which I want to talk about right now. You have to go back to classes we spoke about existence versus essence, and there I made that brief comment about God doesn't really exist in the way we normally use the word existence, so we're going to ignore that, but you have to go back there to answer the question. Yes? So my question, I don't know if that has, and if we get the same answer as that then. Um, like... What was God then before this world was created? Because if he, if he like was just his existence, like he was just his existence, and then he created the world. As in, in our time, there was something before the world was created. Then in that set, in that time, was he considered to be narcissistic? Because he was no, because himself? there was because the, the pro, there's a problem. You ask questions like that is that you think of time as a thing that exists extrinsic to God and extrinsic to creation. So it's like there's time, and then at some point God creates the world. But time is a feature of the world. So that's like saying you can only have under a table if you have a table, right? That makes sense. There's no such under a table if there's no table. Okay, so if I have no table, then what was I putting under the table? Or that just doesn't make any sense, right? So the idea of before is a consequence of something being created. So if something is created, that, that creates the reality of a before and an after. So what was God doing before he created the world is not actually a legitimate question. Now, that's hard for our minds to wrap around because we are created beings. Um, the Rambam has a whole discussion of this where he says that asking what God was doing and why he did it when he did it means you don't know the meanings of the words you're using. The Rambam? The Rambam, yeah. Maimonides. It is the kind of thing you say. He tends to say that a lot. <laughs> and then spending a whole chapter defining terms so you understand what you're talking about and you realize, oh yeah, that's not really a question. Okay. Well, I want to avoid the want-need distinction because that's really only useful when you talk about economics. When you're talking about expending resources. And since God never needs to expend resources, that's not a helpful way of thinking about it. But it's say that a, a lack is always based on a prior value. So the starting point is going to be a value. Then you can have a value to a lack. That lack then means you value something else. That value can mean now you're lacking a third, a second thing. And you can have a whole chain of these. But the top of the chain is actually always going to be a value, not a lack. And then he created it. And that, I mean, he values something, which cr that value create makes them, him lacking in some regard. And that lack, in order to fill that lack, that gives value to creating the world somehow. So That's what we have to, well, in order to know what God lacks, we first need to know what he originally values. Yeah. But, oh, so here's the thing. There is no way we can be able to figure this out because the only way I can figure out what your really primary values are, fundamental values are, is based on the assumption that you and I are the same basic kind of creature. Right, and therefore, if I, if I take two things for granted, that we're fundamentally similar and I have accurate self-knowledge, then I can say that I know what fundamentally drives you, what your fundamental values are. We do this all the time. Psychologists call this mind reading. However, what do you, they don't mean it with what, you know, like, like reading thoughts. Um, 
it means like when you it means like when you walk over to the coffee and you start making a coffee, right? I don't think, hmm. Why are they preparing hot water to throw at people? Right? I don't think that. Why don't I think that? Because I think that you're the same kind of thing that I am, and what would I be valuing in that kind of a circumstance? And it tends to be that we're more often right than wrong, which is why we can build societies and get along with each other. We're wrong some of the time, but we're more often right than wrong. So we could be, so we're not the same. But we and God are not the same kind of thing. So there's no way we could mind read into God and say, well, what must God's primary value be? The one thing we know is whatever it is, it has to serve ultimately to justify the kind of existence of the world that exists. Right. Remember, all lacks, even by human beings, really lacks are always secondary, and before a lack, you always have a value. But it doesn't make sense because, like, then why are there new people being created every day? Why doesn't God just, like, why would well, you, well, what, you don't know what he, you don't know what his initial value is, right? No, that's It's very frustrating. Okay. So, however, fortunately for us, God likes to reveal himself, not to me, not to you, but to prophets. I don't know. Mm. Yes. Okay. Well, it's a good thing that I don't make it a point of trying to convince. I don't make it a point of trying to convince people, but this is, in fact, if you want to know what God's primary value is, it's it's so so basically like this. There is a basic disagreement between more rationally minded Jewish scholars like the Rambam, Maimonides, um, and more mystical scholars like say. the Zohar, the Arizal, people like that, the more Kabbalistic. And one of the things they disagree about is whether you can know God's ultimate value. So it's not an explicit value. One second. But there's not really a disagreement. The disagreement, it's, not, it's a disagreement because, because when you do different methods, you reach different conclusions. If my methodology is to try and mind read God, to try and look at the world, and try and figure out from what God created what God's ultimate value was, is that a possible thing to do? No. no, I can because because figuring out what someone's ultimate value is presupposes you know what they're doing, and that and that you can use yourself as an analogy. Yeah. But if you can't use yourself as an analogy because you and God are nothing alike, well then you're kind of stuck. And so the Rambam says asking what God's ultimate value is as a rational question is ridiculous. It's just not going to go anywhere. But what the Kabbalists are saying is just because you can't figure out the answer doesn't prevent God from revealing it it to you. Yeah, he'd give you the answer, but then you just kind of have to take his word on it. Well, that goes back to the fact that, you know, in Torah we have prophets, and how do we know who's a real prophet, and all that kind of stuff. So it says, the prophet says. The prophet, it has to be, yeah, prophet I have to say, and they would have to check out as a prophet. That goes back to the whole... But But like, is that explicit? I'm a prophet, and I say this is Hashem's ultimate value? Mm -hmm. That's how it worked? Basically. That's you know, well, I mean, if they check out as a good prophet, then no. Okay, but that goes back to the. the okay, so what is God's ultimate value? Yeah. Is it um, is it essentially parallel to prophecy? If like I personally don't drink coffee, but when I see people over at the hot water machine, mm-hmm. like I'm only over there for purposes other than coffee, like just to drink hot water or tea. But often I'll look at a person who's standing there in the morning and think, oh, she's probably making coffee, because I realize that I'm not a perfect analogy. Is that just because I, they've like prophetically revealed to me that that's what they like to drink as coffee? No, because you're still working off the fact that you and them are more or less the same. A prophetic analogy is like if you were to tell me about the experiences of being a woman. Okay. Because I'm not a woman. Okay. 
And what's my point of references of the experiences of being a woman? Right, so I take what people tell me, and you're going to have to come up with analogies that exist in my world, which only somewhat convey, right? And at the end of the day, I'll kind of have a sense of what you're talking about, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I'm taking your word for it. But then, okay, but like taking that as an example, you can, like... You, you do infer things about people then. Like, I don't know, maybe it just doesn't count as mind reading. But, like, for instance, when your wife is pregnant and then all of a sudden she's acting like she's in extreme pain, even though you've never experienced that, you can infer that that's... That's true. That, that's right? true. That's, that, that, that's true. That's true. If you make, the, you can make the categories distinct, in real life these things blend together. Mm-hmm. Right? Because some of what I know about other people, I'm doing mind reading and projecting off of me. And some of what I'm doing is having them inform me stuff that I would never know otherwise. But once they inform me, I can completely understand. And some of it remains completely alien. Do we do a blend of that with God? Where yes. Like God so, so, something so, and then we assume things about him? And right, is there a right. Way to do that? There is a valid way to do that. Okay. And, and there's a lot of discussion of what the valid way to do that is. Um, the, 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 the best way to do that is to let God tell you and then, let, and then ask follow-up questions. Just like with people. Um, yes. So there's one other element here, which is that if you throw in the idea that we have a godly soul, then in as much as a godly soul, we could actually theoretically mind read with God. Because if, if I'm experiencing life as my godly soul, then I could mind read with God. So you actually have a combination of three things. Things you can try and understand, things that God has to reveal to you, and if you could somehow access your godly soul, you might have some sort of intuitive sense of these things. And that's the level of God's answering back? It, well, just like in real life when we communicate, there's all these three different things involved. Yeah. But the thing is, when I say God answering back, I'm not talking about to you individually, I'm talking about to the Jewish people as a collective. Can you give well, that's basically what the entire history of Jewish mysticism is. Is the Jewish people and God being in a dialogue of, God, what's really motivating you and where are you really coming from and how do you really see these things? And God responding. Now, when you talk about one individual person, so this, go, this goes back to this idea that the Jewish people are, like, are a whole. So like when I'm talking to you, right? I'm talking to you, but your toes aren't doing a major job in that. They're not really participating in this discussion. However, the information that I tell you may eventually influence how you use your toes, right? Okay. So similarly, if, you're, if you and I are a bunch of t- toes and God is having a dialogue with the Jewish people, we might not be active participants in that dialogue, but it, that dialogue will still be affecting us. I love you. Okay. Okay. We are the toes of the Jewish people. We were the feet, now we're the toes. We're going down it off. I just wanted to preserve some sense of individuality, that's all. Okay, fine. So what is the thing that God values? So the tricky thing is, and this is what makes the thing, is that if you ask a person what they value, they can tell you something that's accurate, but it may not be the ultimate value. For instance, it does say in many places that God values self-expression. But is that the ultimate value? Is that his primary value? Is that the original value? Or is that one of those secondary values? Is that the, the, the top slice of bread in our, in, our, in our want sandwich? Or is it the bottom slice? Is it God values self-expression and therefore something? Or does he value something else, which therefore means he's lacking and the way to meet that lack is self-expression? That's why you can't just take, you can't just take, oh, God says he values and says that's the ultimate value. 
because sometimes a value could be a secondary or tertiary value down somewhere down that chain. Yeah. Um, does the Rambam agree that God could reveal His value through prophecy? Um. The Rambam is very coy. That's the answer to that question. The Rambam is, is especially in the Guy of the Perplexed, is very, like it, the Ram, almost all the Rambam's works, he's very explicit and very um, precise and very orderly. And his Guy of the Perplexed, where he treats a lot of these things, he says in the introduction that it's gonna be like you're in a dark night and you can't see anything and then there are flashes of lightning. And so you momentarily have clarity and then everything goes dark again. And he like starts one thing and then moves on to something else, comes back to the thing and says and contradicts things. And so he, he, he there, there's things that he says explicitly. There's things that he doesn't say. And when you, you don't, you may not realize he's not talking about them, but then after reflection, realize he's like, like, like judiciously avoiding talking about certain topics. And this is one of those things that he like, he talks a lot about what you can figure out and is, roaringly silent about what God could reveal. And so once you notice that he's not talking about it, it's like, wow, he like managed to write a whole book about theology and completely avoided what God, a question of what God could or could not reveal to people. And, and you would say God's ultimate value is not revealed in the Torah. It is. That's, but, like, but there's that, lots of verses in the Torah. So you, yeah, but we're saying it was revealed through prophecy that seems to indicate that it wasn't through like text. Well, remember the text of the Torah came about prophetically, right? Right. It wasn't like Moshe did like a detailed analysis of the universe and decided to write his summary findings in a book called the Torah, right? That's not how it came about. <laughs> After careful analysis, these are my conclusions. <laughs> Some government report. Yes. So we previously talked about prophecy being like a sixth sense mm-hmm. that you can tap into or like unlock. So. In that same vein, is that saying that like God's values are something that's consistently being revealed? You just need to be able to access the ability to see it? So, y- yes. Yes, that is correct. Now, th- there's actually... Um, there's actually, remember I said that there's actually... A, 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 there's actually there's this prophetic sense. There's also this other sense of amuna. Of the, so you might be able to access it in a way of emuna, or you might be able to access it in a way of prophecy. Those, those are different. I can see things, I can hear things. There are two ways of experiencing something. So you could, exper- you could have a sense of, this, of, of God's values in either of those two ways. Now, realistically, you're probably not going to have prophecy, just to be honest. Sorry. <laughs> Although I have a certificate that says I'm a prophet, so you know. Yeah. No, it's because I kept saying I'm not a prophet, and so the girls here last year, before they left, they gave me a certificate that says that I'm a certified prophet. <laughs> they, also, they also gave me another one that says I'm a certified therapist. So, you know, I don't know how much you trust that. Just because someone has a certificate hanging up on the wall. Yes. You hang it up in your wall? No. It's hard to see. God values being recognized. Okay, so it does. It, it does. It, it, it does. It does say that, but that is not God's ultimate value. What is it? In the I will tell you. Yeah.
someone is talking, please be nice. So you're ha- you're half right. It's part of it. It's a critical part of it. In other words, what the thing that God values means that he is lacking in recognition and lacking in self-expression. And so those things are values. And they're very critical values. But that's not the actual ultimate value. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimate value? Yeah. Love of other, of other. Nope. No, definitely not. Most emphatically not, actually. <laughs> Most emphatically not. I mean, look at the world. Like, <laughs> No, so remember, here's the thing. If you start with God and God, right? So God has no constraints other than the thing that he values. So this is what makes it, so this is what makes it difficult is that there's many things that God might value, but they are not the, the ultimate value because if they were the ultimate value, I mean, A, the world would often look very differently. So if the thing that God valued was... Um, a loving kindness of other beings, the world would not look the way it does. If the ultimate thing that God valued was a recognition of God, then the world would not look like the way it does. If the ultimate thing that God valued is self-expression, the world wouldn't look like the way it does. Now, those not... I just want to finish the thought. It doesn't mean that God doesn't value those things. He does value those things. But those values are secondary values to some higher value. The higher value is... I feel like the higher value would be like... If that's what he valued, then it would be enough to like create the, the other worlds well, actually, that's the thing is you don't need angels for that. All, the, the issue is that none of those other things actually really necessitate creating much of a world at all. Right. The difference in this world is like this world, we have the free will. Oh, very good. So what does God value? God values, God values, God values something that obviously involves our ability to choose to recognize him or choose to reject him, to choose to cooperate with him, to choose to fight against him, because that's a pretty obvious characteristic of the world. Now, the thing that God actually values, okay, um, I'm going to describe it a little bit, and then I will give you the code name for it, but I'm going to describe it first. The thing that God values is somebody else choosing to be godlike. That's the thing he values. He values someone who is not godlike choosing to be godlike. Mm, that creates a bunch of problems, right? So, so let's just run through a few problems. Number one, number one, you can't do that unless there's something that what it is to be godlike. So God better come up with us. What does it mean to be godlike? So he's lacking in that. There's a whole Kabbalistic discussion. That's where you get spheres and stuff. Because if God doesn't have a what is it like to be God, then you can't have being godlike. What? But that's actually, but that all comes secondary. All the stuff you know comes after the primary. The first thing God values is that something that isn't someone that isn't God choosing to be godlike. No. So, but that requires that creates a bunch of lacks. Number one, it creates a lack of otherness because you need someone other than God. It creates a lack of what does it mean to be godlike. It creates a lack of how do you transmit godlikeness, right? It creates the opportunity. Also, also, if you're going to have a choice, you have to also have a clearly defined what is ungodlike. Yeah. You can't choose to be godlike 
if there isn't an ungodlike option that's equally viable. So now you've created a lack of all sorts of things, a lack of evil, a lack of separateness, a lack of, a lack of godly revelations. Yeah, you need some structure of how to go about doing that, right? The laws of the Torah. So everything else stems from this one thing. God values a non-God-like being to, of their own volition, become God-like. That's the thing that he values. What? But that—that's. But the godly soul doesn't exist. This is this is this is before you get a godly soul. This is why God makes beings with godly souls. Why would he make beings with godly souls? So that they have the potential to become. Why does he make beings that are not, that are not perfectly godly? So they have the potential. So that they have potential. What? Oh, angels. So the basic thing, have you ever, have you ever, um, have you, have you ever had to tell somebody stuff that you'd rather not tell them because it's too personal? <coughs> and so it's just easier to like send it like by, by a message. Have you ever had that? No, just have you ever had that experience? Like you don't want, yeah? Because direct, direct contact has a level of intimacy. Hundred percent. Yeah. One second. One second. One second. One second. One second. I will tell you. Okay. Because if you are going to freely choose to be ungodlike, you have to have a reality that functions in a self-contained way. In other words, in order to choose to be godlike or not godlike, the reality in which I live has to have a sense that God is not intimately bound up in every single thing that happens. Very simple. I'll give you a very, very simple uh, thing, yeah? Okay? On Shabbos, it is forbidden to turn on the light. If you have a sense that the only, there is no light, that God himself is illuminating, then you can't have a choice to turn on the light or not to turn on the light. There has to be a sense that there is this thing called a light and it operates by certain principles. And so there needs to be this level of distance, this level of, 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 rigidity that if God were to be intimately bound up in what's happening, you would have a sense that everything is just a direct encounter with God. There's no idea of, of, there's no idea of, of choosing to do something in a God-like or not like way. There's no structure to reality. So the purpose of angels, angels are beings that God uses to create distance and structure. So every time God uses an angel, the result is that something has, the, the result is that something feels more structured and rule-bound rather than being just God's um, intimate and, and free involvement. And that's why, for instance, Moshe was very upset when God said, I'm going to lead you through the desert using an angel. So the fact that we think we can study the world and understand it and make predictions about what will and won't happen, that is a, that the, way, the, the tool that God uses to create reality in that way is what, what are called malachim in Hebrew or angels in English. So it's... Without, with, if God didn't want to create a reality that has the sense of being structured and self-contained and having its own internal logic, then there, would, then there wouldn't be anything that gives its internal logic. So angels are like Klippa, kind of. S- but then why did yeah. the angels want to stop Moses from, like, whoever it was? Who from? Came? From, like, someone was like, yeah, it was Moshe who was, like, wrestling, and one angel was like, no, you shouldn't have this because I'm a set of I mean, depend, there's, they could be referring to Moshe and the angels, you could be referring to Yaakov and a certain angel, you have to be specific which story it is. Okay. Yeah. Um, so there's a, basic rule, there's a basic rule about angels, which is that 
that if people do what they're supposed to do, they're supposed to be intimately connected with God. And the basic structure function of an angel is to create a structure that serves as a barrier between the space where humans exist and God. So there's like a built-in tension between what a person should do if they're meant to achieve their goal and what an angel is supposed to do. Um, angels, angels make things very structured and rule-bound, and people are supposed to choose to be godly. And, and, there's a, there's, and therefore the Medrash is full of all sorts of descriptions of tensions between people and angels. Okay. I don't want to go more into what angels are, but angels, every single thing can be explained in this context. That doesn't mean I know the explanation. But the context is that God, the thing that God values is someone who is really not godly choosing to be truly godly. Now, why does God value that? Why does God value that? It's a test if we remember Wednesday's class. Why does God value that? What? If it's the primary value, is there a reason why he values it? No, because if there's a reason why he values it, then it's not. <coughs> Which means, does God value because it makes him feel good? No. But the reverse is true. When it happens, because he values it, therefore, he feels good. Okay? Does God, is, right? So this is very important. It's not that God is sitting around being bored. And want, this thing that starts out that God values this. He doesn't have, there's nothing compelling him to value it. It's not necessary, but he does. Once that's true that he values that, then if it doesn't happen, he lacks, and that would feel, if we went there for more precise, painful. And if it does happen, that would feel good. But he's not valuing it to make himself feel good any more than you value having a child because it feels good, because having children, as much as it's wonderful, it's also extremely difficult and painful. So he values someone other than God being truly godly, and that means now he's lacking a bunch of things. He's lacking other beings. He's lacking a structured world for them to operate in. He's lacking a definition of what it means to be godly, a definition of what it means not to be godly, a, 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 a system by which beings can actually succeed in becoming godly, what enable, what potential that allows them to be godly, a bunch of stuff. Okay? And that's what creates the world and the Torah and all these things. Yes? Two questions. This is like about the angels. Why did Hashem then consult the angels before the creation of man? So that most of the discussions about angels are 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 um, metaphoric descriptions of things. So the, the, when he consults the angels, he one of the, he he asks the angels whether he should create man or not, and the angel of, of truth says no because people are full of lies. And then the angel of kindness says yes, because people are kind to each other. And the angel of... What's that? The angel of... The, the angel of peace says no, because people are always fighting. And... The angel of justice says yes, because people try and make just... People try and pursue justice. And then God takes the angel of truth and kicks it out and says, well, now it's two to one, and so we're creating a world. That's what the Medra says. Um, there's more to the story. But basically what that means is that if God makes a world that's structured by tr- truth as a dominant characteristic, then human beings can't, do not have the ability to achieve um, a godly existence. And to make that very practical, what that means, what, what happens if you become insistent that everything be the right way, the ideal way, 
what level of tolerance do you have for imperfection? Zero. So, what are you, can you then engage in the messy process of building relationships with others or self-growth? No. No. Which means that although truth has to be a value, it has to be in some sense a secondary value. It has to be contextualized by other things because the pursuit of truth as a primary value um, doesn't allow human beings to function. And so since the structure of reality is what's being described as angels, so there's in metaphors, but it, it, it doesn't actually mean that there's... Um, so the... This ultimate value was before. Yeah, the ultimate value is before all of those things. And then there's a, how do these other values work out in such a way they facilitate? And that's often described as God is having discussions. In the same way that you sometimes discuss and clarify what secondary values achieve your primary value. So it's a metaphor. So where does this prophecy come from? It's in a metric. It's just, and this is like the ultimate, that's not... This value would explain all the other values. And the way the world is. So are there other opinions that say this is ultimate value? We've just found that to not necessarily make so, sense? So there are other opinions that speak about ultimate values, but when you look at the entire works, they're talking about ultimate values in a limited sense. They're not talking about all of existence. They're talking about what is the value of, say, so you, if, you look, if you look at the reason, the reason says, what is the value that gives rise to the spheres? Mm-hmm. Okay, so it explains that, but that doesn't explain like why... And then, the, then he, somewhere else he says, and what is, the, what is the value that gives rise to evil? And he says something else. You obviously, once you have those two things, you need something else that groups those two together. So, okay. Um, yes? Well, last time when we said that God's creation is meaningful and contingent, then back to the, like, plans for he made, is human creation and choice also always meaningful and contingent, or can it fall into the other places? Well, if it's choice, then we use the word choice for things that are meaningful and contingent. So then I would say by, by just, you know, arguing from the, what the term means, that's... Now, I wouldn't say all human action is choice. Yeah. For so instance... not necessarily choice, but just any human action. Because in that way, could you say that God... God values humans becoming godly because they do have the ability to act in these other... It's the other way. God values a non-godly being becoming godly. The only kind, the kind of being that is capable of doing that is what we know as a Jew. A Jew is the kind, that kind of a being. So why the That is a very good question to which there are answers. But since we're coming to the end of class, and I'm not going to explain everything in existence, <laughs> because I can't explain everything in existence. Wait, yeah, that makes me wait. What? That, doesn't that just make us all fall on its head? No, I said there's an answer. I just said I'm not giving it to you right now. Oh, man. If you ask me also why does that mean there has to be a prohibition of wool and linen, I say there's an answer to that too, but I'm not giving you to that right now. You will answer it. That's like above this. No, you just don't know the answer. Is God lonely? No, because if God is lonely, that would presuppose he values. What's the value that presupposes that gets before loneliness? Companionship. Companionship. When he values having someone, another being... But that's not loneliness. Like I, when I'm lonely, I don't want other people to be exactly like me. Right? It's not loneliness. There actually isn't anything like this. Human beings don't actually have something exactly like this. No, those are necessary things to become godlike. But if all things he valued is acknowledging, he just create. He could have created. He could have created a consciousness that acknowledges God, and then that's all that thing is, and then that would have been fine. 
He just created this pure acknowledgement of God consciousness and no. He did. He did it. No, but why have this world? So then clearly, then he values the choosing of it. Okay. I just want to tell you what this is called. Okay. This is called God having a dwelling place in the lower worlds. Okay. Now I'm explaining to you why it's called this way. Dwelling place, because a dwelling place is a place where you are yourself in the fullest sense. So if God were to dwell somewhere, then that place would be totally 100% godlike. And a lowest world means something that is as ungodly as it could be. Okay, so by the way, if you remember what that lowest thing is, that lowest thing is us. We're the lowest thing. Um, he does, but I can't, don't have time to explain that. I know why you think that, and if you go deeper into this, he he, he does, but I don't want to. Okay. So, I mean, that's my, my answer. I agree with you. Okay, we're Okay, and then here's the and here's the thing: the dwelling, the idea of dwelling place in the lower world is that the lower world, the lower thing itself, makes itself into a dwelling. Okay. And those are metaphors for the idea that I was just saying earlier, that a non-godly being itself chooses to make itself godly. And how godly? As godly as God is. Because if anything less than that, it's not really considered a full godly being. And so everything else then stems from that. So God has to have, what does it mean to be, he has to have a self-definition for what does it mean to be godly. It has to be godliness within physicality. Well, the physicality either is serving to be godly or it's serving to be other than godliness. But every single, every single feature of physical, spiritual reality, of halachic reality, of, of history, all plays a role in this. And every single individual person plays a role in this. Now, if you know what that is, that's wonderful. If you don't know what that is, that, that's frustrating. But that's the way it is. If you, God values other people... Being godly, so that creates a lack of people. Mm-hmm. So, isn't that creation necessary? It's it's necessary in as much as he values that thing. But since nothing necessitates him valuing that thing, then then in some ultimate sense, it's not necessary. It's only necessary in a limited sense. Necessary to it's necessary to achieve the higher value. But if the higher value isn't necessary, you see what I'm saying? Yes. If you want, I can ask. I'm not avoiding answering you. It's just I'm not answering you now. If you want to answer me next week, I'll answer you. Guys, let's ask you later. Okay. I mean, this also, but like, it seems like there's like a lot of extra fluff that's gone into create, like into creation. You could say, like, why why would God create like complex ecosystems? Obviously, I care about that. But like earthquakes, like all of these, like na- like these. In tremendous amount of natural phenomena that exist in our world, if all he really wants is connect, is I, I, I will I will tell you one interesting thought. <laughs> one of the things that we think that God is is a creator. Yes. And when you understand the world is having this very functional thing that oh this is for that and that is for that and that is for that and thinks God have this kind of like you know very pragmatic, goal oriented kind of a being, yeah. Why are there why are there supernovas millions of light years away? Yeah. And well, what does that indicate about God? It has to somehow fit into this. Right. Well, what does that indicate about God? That God is not that that God is not limited to doing things just for some pragmatic purpose. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, maybe part about be, part of being godlike is that not everything has to be goal oriented. Oh, so that helps actually with theory of evolution because if everything, nothing in this world, like animals and plants, they don't have a specific function for a specific purpose. They've just been created in that way by however you want to say it. Except that the Torah says about animals that they were. It just doesn't say it. Yeah. So, but not about superdogs. It says about the stars as a, as, as a totality, but not why you need a particular individual super number seven. My point is my, my point is that, that that answering this question, often you need to you need to examine other things like like we there's certain things we associate being about like being generous, being kind, being moral, right? But maybe there's other things like being God, like not being limited to being goal oriented. Right. Now, how which things fit into what? Sometimes we know, and sometimes we don't. That's in fact one of the big things about Shabbos, and by the way, we'll just end on this. That's in Kabbalah the big difference between things that are associated with men and women is that things that are associated with a goal, being goal oriented and achievement, are coded masculine in Kabbalah, and things that are that are not um, about achievement and goal oriented are coded feminine. So what are those things about? Say like Shabbos. What's Shabbos about? What are you supposed to achieve on Shabbos? Not, not nothing. You're supposed to be present. You're supposed to be fully present. So it's about achieving nothing. It's about achievement is the not is 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 not the only modality of being godly. Mm-hmm. Just being. There's some other way of being godly which has nothing to do with achieving. Okay, so one more. Question. And then people undervalue that. Going back to the things that we people so tend to value achieving and goals and changing and that kind of stuff. So when I ask you about 